Psalm 171 and may, may be found on page 577 of the Church Bibles. <coughs> Excuse me. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous deeds or your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvellous deeds. Even when I am old and grey, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens, you who have done great things. Who is like you, God? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth you will again bring me up. You will increase my honour and comfort me once more. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you. I whom you have delivered, my tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long. For those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. Here ends the reading. The second reading this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 5. Verses 1 to 20 and may be found on page 1006 of the Church Bibles. In this uh, chapter, we hear how Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes when Jesus got out of the boat. A man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, 
but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving him them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and was terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the leaves. I must apologise. The, the pages and the Bible were stuck together. <laughs> now that's not my fault, is it? <laughs> so I'll start again. With your patience, I'll read it again. We'll go back to where Where the, where, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us out among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demons-possessed men and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him 
but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the end of the reading. I think you're meant to say, have a seat. Yeah, have a seat, everyone. Um, thank you, Max, and thanks for, for having me. And thank you for uh, allowing me to, be, to request the, all the hymns this morning. They were all my choice. So thank you to, the, to Hamish up there and to the music people uh, for, for that. It's nice for me to hear some of the songs from my childhood. I don't get to hear them very often at five o'clock. I have to say, so uh, it was very nice to hear them. Uh, today, um, so thanks for that. Today, I want to talk about this strange story of the healing of the demon-possessed man. Uh, it's a chilling story, if you read it carefully. It's brilliant drama, uh, even more so if we think about where this fits into the rest of Mark's gospel. And I think it's a story that can tell us a lot about Jesus, about a lot about who Jesus is and what our response to him might be, and especially what encouragement we might get from, from him this morning in our lives today. So let's pray about that as we start. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing each of us here today. Thank you that um, you know each of us intimately, you know our stories, you know our hopes and our fears, you know exactly how we're feeling today. I do pray that... Um, as we look at this story of the healing of the demon-possessed man, that you would speak to us, you'd encourage us, and help us to know why it's, this story still matters today in each of our lives. Amen. Where I, I work in the city, in the CBD, where I work there, I often go for a walk at lunchtimes, and every time I do that, I walk past human wreckage. Uh, people who are alcoholics or damaged, terribly damaged by drugs, mostly men. I see them clinging to bottles in brown paper bags, swaying on park benches, slumped against walls. Uh, they're, they're sort of filthy, uh, they're a bit smelly, they're often sick, sunburnt, their skin peeling off them, they're malnourished. And they're in very public places, but they're a long way from caring who might see them in that sort of state. And many of them have terrible mental illness. They shout at people, they shout obscenities to no one in particular. And there's this picture of, a, of someone whose dignity is completely gone. They're kind of broken people. And if you get into a conversation with one of these people, amidst the kind of rambling that you often get, you get hints of a different life in the past. And you have to resist the thought that they've just always been like this. And occasionally I find myself wondering about what their life was like before things came unstuck. When they had families and jobs and aspirations. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sad. And when I get to thinking about this demon-possessed man in Mark's Gospel, when we first meet him, I have sort of similar thoughts 
But here is someone who is damaged beyond recognition. He's a frightening picture of a life gone wrong. Jesus and his disciples arrive in this Gentile area. The pigs are a bit of a clue for that, right? They're in the Gentile area on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And they meet this crazed man. In verses 3 to 5, we read, This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd been chained hand and foot, but he, ch- he tore, at the chains of, t- tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now this guy is clearly well known in the area. It's my guess he would have been the subject of all the terrifying bedtime stories. Or maybe the stories that other you know, kids tell each other to, to frighten themselves. Now I can imagine that the local cafe, the local village square, he would have frequently been the main item of conversation. The locals had tried to restrain him, but no human power could do it. He's a fearful sight and a terrifying thought, and he's tearing at himself. He's tortured in his mind and his body. And he no doubt tormented the people, the local people, as a fearful presence among them. But, But I wonder what he was like as a child. At some point, he was a little boy with dreams and hopes and plans. And I can picture him as a little boy wandering around, a little toddler with a you know, toy boat. He'd be a picture of innocence and potential. But when we meet him, he's alone living among the tombs, a local monster. He's racked with evil spirits, a victim of evil forces. And I'm thinking even his mum's given up visiting him out out there. He represents the the toll that a life can take and just how tragically life can turn. And then he meets Jesus. And things change. It's good to remind ourselves of the context of this, where this appears in Mark's Gospel. Remembering that it's Mark's Gospel more than any of the others. Although they, they do this too, but Mark's gospel especially shows that, that it's the disciples and the people around him who just didn't get who Jesus was. Over and over again we see the disciples shown to be kind of almost buffoons in the way they don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus is getting more and more frustrated with this. And this story that we're focusing on today is grouped together with, with three stories. That, it, that show in kind of increasing levels of, of uh, complexity and levels of understanding that who Jesus is, that, Je- that we're, f- we're gradually finding out that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the King who's in charge of the universe. He's just calmed the storm in chapter 4. We actually got a bit of that today as well. He's, he's calmed the storm in chapter 4, so that was good, showing that he's Lord over, the na- over nature, he's Lord over creation. And then ahead of this story, he heals the, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. The Lord over sickness. And then attached to that story is the synagogue ruler Jairus, whose, whose daughter has died. And Jesus comes along and, and brings her back to life. The Lord over life and death. And in our passage, in this particular passage, in the middle of that section we find out that Jesus is also the Lord over the spirit world. 
And again, it's worth remembering that this is all unfolding before the disciples' eyes. I sometimes sound like I'm being a bit unfair on the disciples in that I don't get this. But let's not forget that this is unfolding before their eyes. Jesus has calmed the storm just prior to this. And they're starting to get a bit unnerved by this. They're looking at each other going, who who is this guy that we're hanging around here? I mean, for heaven's sake, the the, the wind obeys his, his word. See, this is playing out in front of their eyes, and they don't know how this is going to end. It's only slowly being kind of revealed to them. And no doubt they're asking themselves some questions, you know, muttering to each other uh, in the corner after the healing of the demon-possessed man. Who is this we're hanging around? Well, Jesus is starting to show them who, who he is. When we look at this passage, I think there's a real value in, look, in, in considering the, the various reactions to Jesus as this happens, of the different people mentioned in the story. Well, first of all, the evil spirits. What's their reaction to Jesus? Well, more than anyone else, it's in the Gospel of Mark, more than any of the other Gospels, it, where you see that it's the demons who understand who Jesus is more than anyone else. I think this is a fantastic, sort of dramatic part of the narrative. The demons see who Jesus is when no one else does. They have absolute clarity about this. And it presents us at this moment, with a really very sharp moment in the, in the story. If this was a movie, this was a film, this would be the point at which you know, the, all the dramatic effects of camera angles and music and so on would be employed to maximum effect. When we get the, the recognition of the demon, of this man walking among them. And this is what happens. He says, when the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he says, what do you want with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. As the reader, we're immediately struck by this identification of Jesus that no one else has been able to come up with so far. The demons know who this guy is. And it's kind of chilling, don't you think? It's a chilling thing. And what, what's their reaction? I mean, this is the sort of thing where it gets you, you know, or two, anyway, as you read this, the hair on the back of your neck standing up. The demon sees who this is. No one else does. And what's the demon's reaction? Well, they react with terror. Here's this rabbi. They're terrified. And they know they are, and they're terrified because they know they're against someone who is to be feared. He comes to bring life. They come to destroy it. But he is the Lord. They react with submission. They know they're well out of their league. And they beg for mercy and permission to go into the pigs. And they are obedient to Jesus. They leave the man, they go into the pigs. It's a a stunning moment in the story. Jesus, Lord of the spirit world. The second reaction is the reaction of the people, the crowd in the story. How do they react? Well, it's a very interesting reaction. They come to see what's happened. They've learned something of the story from the guys who are tending the pigs who've gone off and told them about this. And they rush up from the towns to see what's being reported. And here is this infamous, crazed man. In verse 15, they say, and I've always loved this phrase, they saw the man who'd been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. 
dressed and in his right mind. You can just picture him, can't you? He's had a shower. He's, uh, you know, he's, 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 he's combed his hair. He's got the, the new freshly ironed shirt on. Here's this man that was such an infamous presence among them. And, what, and what's their reaction to this? They were afraid. They were afraid. I wonder why they were afraid. I want to suggest that they were afraid because they realised that there was something profound and disturbing going on here at a spiritual level. They understood that a spiritual battle was taking place and they didn't like it. They'd just rather have their lives back, thanks. Don't come, Jesus, don't come mess with us with all this weird stuff. We want our safe lives. We want our own lives. And so they begged Jesus to leave the area. It's a fascinating reaction. It's no different today. Lots of people just don't want to know. Leave us alone with our own lives, thanks. And then there's the man, the third reaction is the man himself. What about his, his reaction? Well, unsurprisingly, he reacts with gratitude, obedience, and devotion. He's released from his tortured life. He's free. And he wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus says to him, No, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so he does. He goes and he does what Jesus told, told him to do. Go home to your family. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he's had mercy on you. It's a beautiful image, don't you think? Imagine this. Can you imagine the knock on the door that day? And here they are with this new creation standing in front of them. Someone who long ago they'd given up hope of ever seeing restored. And there he is. Well, that day they got their father back or their brother or, or son or who knows. It would have been amazing, though, to have him returned, dressed and in his right mind. And when the disciples go back to this area later, there are lots of people by this stage following Jesus. And there's a suggestion by many commentators that he's got, you know, it's because of this guy going back and telling his family and presumably everyone else who'd listen about what Jesus has done for him that, and that Jesus is the Lord. They're finding this out. And the reaction of these three groups is very different, but there's no indifference. You don't get any of this sort of Jesus is a nice guy or a good bloke or a kind of important teacher or translator of the times, interpreter of the times. The reaction to Jesus is extreme. It polarizes people. He doesn't seem to allow people to think of him in neutral terms. And later on he says that you're either for me or against me. I'm either who I say that I am or I'm not. And, the, and you, know, you, ha, you, don't, you can't sort of leave me in a sort of neutral position. C.S. Lewis used to say that as he pointed to the story of Jesus and especially the, the, the cross and the resurrection, he used to say the one, that this is either of absolute ultimate importance or it's of absolutely no importance at all. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think today we can slip very easily into thinking, well, our culture particularly, this is sort of moderately, vaguely, maybe, 
important. Well, Jesus doesn't allow this. And so this story, along with the rest of the Gospels, tells us that Jesus is the Lord, he's the King, he's in charge, he's in control, he's, kind of the, he's the one. But I want to ask today, as we sit here, what does it even mean to say that Jesus is the Lord? I mean, do you ever find yourself doubting and wondering whether really God is in control? You might have been a Christian for, for many years, but are there times still when everything around you looks like the opposite is true? That God has left the building long ago and that we're here on our own? I mean, there's plenty of evidence for this. You might uh, look around the world at the truly terrible things going on and be left wondering that. I mean, the shocking violence carried out by ISIS in various places, as we try to make sense of that. Or the struggle for especially Christian people in Syria or Iraq or places like Nigeria and others. The most persecuted religious group in the world today are Christians. Um, don't get that very often in the media reported. People don't know what to do about that. But there's absolutely no doubt about the fact the Christians are the most persecuted people in the world today. And then you might think back to the what, closer to home, the way our culture just seems to be turning its back on the Christian faith. 61% of people still say in the census that they have some sort of loose affiliation with Christianity. But on any given Sunday, 92% of us are not in church. 60% of people say they don't have a close personal friend who's a Christian. 60% of people, I think that's a stunning thing. And you also get a shift in the, in the way things have moved away from the church. When you think about, for instance, just as an example, there's lots of these, but of the number of people who get married in a church. So get this, there's a massive and very fast sort of sociological shift. In 1973, uh, this is well and truly within my lifetime, 70, uh, sorry, 83% of people got married in a church. You know, you might not be a big church goer, but if you're going to get married, you kind of that's what you do. You come down to the local church and see if Bruce Clark will do it, do it for you, and you get married. By 1999, that had become 51 percent of people, and by 2012, 28 percent of people get bothered to get married in the church. It's, it's a massive shift. So, if we want to think about where our culture is going. Uh, it's hard to ignore that sort of thing. And with that, with that comes a kind of sneering dismissal of Christian thinking. And you can begin to wonder, if you pay any attention to this, whether the whole thing doesn't look a little bit foolish and that you're kind of on the wrong side of where everyone else is going. And then, forgetting all that, there are things happening in people's lives around the world and in this city and I dare say in this room that make them fear that God is not in control and that he's not Lord after all. We have our moments, even the most faithful people uh, where they, that, that we're left feeling that way. And when we feel that way, we need to return to the Gospels, to this story of the demon-possessed man and plenty of others like it, the big story of the Bible, that tells us about a reality that's behind the reality of the things that happen to us and in front of us every day.
And the book of Revelation is like this. It tells us it's this, 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 this climax to the big, biggest story ever told. But its, it's message might be there's a reality behind the reality of what's going on here. And we experience that reality, the hidden reality that God has in fact got the whole thing in his hands, that he has each of us in his hands. Because today's passage is about Jesus, the author of life, against the ones who would come to destroy life. And he's saying, I'm the Lord. And ultimately, he will be the one who prevails. And we need to remember that even though these healings are telling us something about the character of Jesus and his mercy and his goodness and his kindness, that they do point towards the greater reality that God is about bringing in his kingdom into the world. When we focus on that story, we see that Mark is leading us towards the cross and the resurrection. That's where he's taking us in this narrative, this sort of unfolding narrative of the reality of this identity of this man. And we get to the cross and the resurrection as God's answer to all of our sufferings, all of our questions and our struggles. The cross that looks to everyone at the time like failure and shame and defeat turns out to be the promise of a glorious future. The cross and the resurrection, as we're coming up to Easter, shows shows where Jesus and shows where God finally and emphatically shows that He is the Lord and He's worth putting our trust in. And this taps into longings that we all have. We all got them. this sort of longing that, of, that Jesus will do for us what he did for the demon-possessed man, crashing into our lives, overcoming what is wrong, making ruined things new, restoring what is hopeless, overcoming disappointment. And the biblical picture offers a possibility of a new beginning where ultimately, in the end, murdered children will be raised up and restored. Where families that have been torn apart by violence will find harmony again. It's a big vision of a time where crushing loneliness will be a thing of the past. Where bodies that have been ravaged by disease or old age will be restored to strength and vitality. And where people who've experienced grinding poverty will be ushered into a life of of abundance. I mean, this is the biblical vision, the big story. Now, we may not experience the fullness of that, this side of heaven. We may at times. But it's a good reminder that Jesus is in the business of bringing about redemption, of restoring people's lives. And many of us here can speak of that. Speak of the powerful redemptive work of God in our lives at times of loss. But not always in the way we would have hoped for and not always the way we would have expected. But nonetheless, restoration. Redemption. I know that all, I mean, everyone here would know about Andrew Chan who uh, is one of the two Australians waiting for execution in Indonesia for their part in a terrible heroin smuggling operation 10 years ago. Well, Chan has you know, famously become a Christian in jail. Uh, he's studied theology and right up to the point where he was taken away recently to what they're calling Execution Island, 
he uh, was leading the worship service in Karabakan prison uh, right up to the end of that. And years ago, as he was in solitary confinement, he started reading the Bible. And it took him a while to get, get much from this. But eventually, he cried out to God. And he said he sensed God with him in his solitary confinement. And he became a Christian. Fully kind of restored Christian. And he, he hoped, of course, and, and who would blame him, for a, a reprieve. He was hoping not to be uh, ordered for execution. But he said that even when he discovered that he, that wasn't going to happen, he said he sensed that God said to him, Andrew, I've set you free from the inside. And it's been a powerful thing for him. It's changed him. In recent weeks, he was ordained as a minister of the church. And he tells the media who are interested in this, he attributes, entirely attributes his changed life to his religious conversion. It's been all over the news, you know, in the news and in the media. It's been fascinating to watch. He reckons when he read the passage in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus curses the fig tree for not producing fruit, he said to himself, that's my life. That's, what, that's me. I've had a wasted life. Produced no fruit. I've been no good to anyone. And I want to be different from that. And so he's now so well known as a calming influence among the other prisoners and someone who brings them to, to change, turn their lives around, get off drugs and become something, uh, you know, do something useful, that even the governor of the prison is one of those sort of you know, appealing for his life at the last minute. And Jeff Hammond, who was uh, the spiritual counsellor to Andrew Chan, he's a pastor, he was talking to Fran Kelly on ABC Radio National the other day, and he said this, he said about Andrew, Andrew's got a peace within his own heart, his hope, whether he lives or whether he dies, is that the fruit that he's been able to produce will continue to be a blessing to other people. It's a radically transformed life from someone who is selfish enough to think that a big cash grab, regardless of the damage it might cause, would be worth it to this person who hopes, whether he lives or dies, that he'll be able to produce fruit for the sake of other people. It's a powerful story of grace and hope. It fits with the sort of transformed life that we've been talking about here today, about the, the healing of the demon-possessed man. This story of the, the, the man possessed by a legion of demons becoming a great follower of Christ gives us sort of a knowledge and a hope that Jesus actually is who he says he is, that he's the Lord, that he's in control. He's not only the Lord of nature, over sickness and death, but also the spirit world. I've always loved this story for that reason. And because, it may, because of that, because of who Jesus claims to be, it makes sense to submit our lives to him, all our joys, all our sorrows, with a sort of hopefulness attached to that. At the end of his... Uh, classic explanation of the Christian life, mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this about what it means to submit, your, to make Jesus Lord of your life. He says this, give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, favourite wishes every day and submit with every fibre of your being 
and you will find eternal life. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Or may we all be encouraged and emboldened to do that very thing today as we read this powerful story.